We would like to first acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional gathering grounds for many diverse Indigenous peoples, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continue to enrich our vibrant community. We would also like to acknowledge that recognition is nothing without action, and we invite our listeners to take actions towards reconciliation with us today in honor of the National Arts and Humanities Month by making a conscious effort to seek out local Indigenous artists, artisans, and businesses, we hope to be able to contribute to economic reconciliation and to support a healthy, thriving Indigenous economy. Follow the links in the episode description for more information on local Indigenous-owned businesses. Please be aware that this episode of Research Recasted makes brief mention of rape and that this may be difficult for some. Please take care when listening. Hello and welcome back to Research Recast at the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Dylan Cave and I'm here with my co-host Brittany Eklund. Today's episode is all about the finer things in life. We're talking theater, we're talking sunny days in Spain, and we're talking chocolate. Here with us in studio is Dr. Aaron Cowling, an associate professor and discipline coordinator of Spanish in the Department of Humanities at McCune University. Aaron's research is focused on early modern Spanish theater. Think Shakespeare, but en español. She has also recently published two books with the University of Toronto Press, and we will link to those in the episode notes. Hi, Erin. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. So, um, before we dive into your books, <laughs> which we will link to in the thing, um, can you please just tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got involved in researching Spanish theater and history? All right. So cut me off if I go too long because it has to go back into my childhood um, when my parents would have Spanish exchange students come and stay with us in the summer to learn English. And I thought that was super cool being, you know, like five, six years old and having mm -hmm. these teenagers come and live in my house from this foreign land. Um, and so in Ontario, at least, we had to take French all through to grade nine. And so I did that. And then when I was in grade nine, they were like, hey, we want to bring in another language. Would anybody be interested in Spanish or Italian? And I was like, oh, my God, Spanish, please. Like, I've been listening to these people growing up. I really want to learn this language. And so they did. And then the next year, I actually got to go back to Spain with a girl who had come and stayed with us the year previous. So that was super cool. Um, and then when I got to university, I was kind of like, what do I do with myself? I have to make decisions about like the rest of my life. And so I ended up uh, double majoring in history and Spanish. And I had a Spanish professor who was like, I want to take a bunch of students to Spain for the summer to learn about Spanish theater in Spain and watch the plays in like live theater productions. And I was like, all in, right? Like, I liked theater growing up. I liked going. We lived near Stratford, Ontario. So I used to go to the Stratford Shakespeare Festival. Nice. And so I was like, yes. And I fell in love. And I was like, I have to do this for the rest of my life. And here I am. <laughs> nice. So how Just... old were you when you went? Uh, that would have been between, I think, third and fourth year of university for me. Okay. So I would have been like 21. Okay. I mean, I always think it's like really interesting when young people like fall in love with Shakespeare. It's like <laughs> a really, it really stands the test of time when you have young people being like Shakespeare in the park, sign me up. Totally. Amazing. Um, so then you go to Spain um, and you go to the theater there? Yeah. So in this small town called Almagro, 
uh, which is just south of, we'll just go with Madrid because that'll be an easy one for everybody. <laughs> um, they have this theater festival every July uh, and it runs the whole month of July and you can go every night to at least two plays if you want to. So there's one usually at 10 p.m. and then there's sometimes one at midnight or 1 a.m. because Spaniards like to stay up all night. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you can go to all these plays and they're usually done at night just because it's so hot there. Yeah, uh, I've been there waiting for the train to go back to Madrid and it's 47 degrees Celsius and you're standing on the platform and there's no shade. Yeah. So uh, at night is good because it cools off a little bit. Uh, and the sun's well, not and like people have had a rest during the day. Sure, you have your siesta. Yeah. Yep. You get up in the morning, you do some things, and then you're like, it's too hot. So you just go back and you you sleep for a couple hours yeah, and then a nap you can and go a out. Snack. Yeah. It's my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, what I'm just like really curious about is so you're in um Al Almagro? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um what was that play like what was the best play that you saw there and like how did that um kind of like spark that desire to study Spanish early modern theater so in that trip there was probably two that really sort of pushed me um the first was called La Silva Cassandra which is about a witch named Cassandra um who kind of defies the church and and what happens to her and they used puppets for part of it to kind of do a meta theatrical thing which I was obsessed with for a while I actually wrote my paper comparing that to Romeo and Juliet because she's supposed to fall in love with this guy but she doesn't want to anyway <laughs> and then there was a Spanish version Romeo y Julieta which was done with flamenco dancing and I was like this is this is fantastic so yeah yeah that's really funny I um because I did go to school, I lived in Venezuela for a few years um, when I was in junior high, and we did Romeo and Juliet. And I think I was the monk <laughs> in the graveyard. Um, but yeah, I had my little monologue, and it was super fun. Um, I never knew you you lived in Venezuela. I did. Uh, we my should dad. go for arepas. <laughs> I do love an arepa. Um, one of my one of my very good friends and another another musician friend. Um, him and his partner. His partner is from Venezuela, and she always teases me by saying, "Next time we get together, I'm cooking arepas," and um, it hasn't happened yet. So I'm still Sad waiting. Face. So next time that happens, I'll make sure to have a big open invite. Open for invite. <laughs> well, I'm in. And then you can speak Spanish. You can have somebody to speak Spanish with. I could. It's good to practice. Um, so Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra. Mm -hmm. Um, you saw one of his plays. I have there? seen some of his oh, okay. plays, but not that original. So not the original. Okay. He's an interesting character because he always wanted to be a playwright and he wanted to be a popular because that was where the money was. And he never made it during his lifetime. And he was very sad about that. Mm -hmm. So his plays are not as popular and yet they are very, very interesting. And they're starting to be sort of rediscovered just in the last five or six years. Yeah, because you've actually like studied and researched his work. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what prompted you to study him, how you discovered him um, and just like the research that you did on him? OK, so he is most well known, especially in North America for Don Quixote de la Mancha, right? The, the kind of crazy knight who goes off and has adventures and beats mm -hmm. up windmills thinking that they're giants and, and things like that. And so that's his most well-known work, especially outside of Spain. Um, and it's 
a really interesting work because he's one of the first people to say like, the system's not working for us guys, right? So they had this whole honor code system where it was like you had to behave certain ways and do certain things in order to maintain your status in society. And he's one of the first people who starts to talk about what we now call desengaño, which doesn't have a very good English translation. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to bear with me with some of my, when I throw Spanish out there. But basically it's like this disenchantment. It's this idea that the system that has been like propped up by the church and the monarchy and the nobility for hundreds of years isn't actually working for the average person. And we have to sort of unveil or become disenchanted with these ideas. Um, and so the Quixote really is about, look, this way that people have been living, this chivalric, you know, men have to behave a certain way, women have to behave a certain way, doesn't really work for our society, for the people who are below the like moneyed classes. Um, and so that whole adventure is actually this sort of trying to unveil or, or pull back the wool from our eyes, right? And his plays do a lot of the same things. Um, and that's sort of why he was never popular in his time, right? He dies pretty poor. Um, and so the plays themselves, the ones that I've studied, are actually through the adaptations that are being done by a Mexican theater company called F.A. Tres Teatro. Um, and what they do is they try to minimalize things as much as possible. So they usually only have two actors who are on stage most of the time. Um, sometimes they add in a musician or somebody who's doing sort of like a, a narration over top. Um, and so the one, the three actually, because they're sort of these short interludes that they did recently uh, were called El Merolico or the traveling salesman. And it's this traveling salesman who comes around and says, look, I can sort of fix everything that ails you and sort of take the wool off of your eyes and, and pull back this veil and show you what the real world is like through these stories of Miguel de Cervantes. Okay, and like what what did you study? Like that's the thing I'm trying to wrap my head around is like what kind of like what was the question that you wanted answered when you were participating in this research with the mm -hmm. theater company? So what I'm interested in now is how are these theater companies bringing these plays that are 400, 500 years old and making them relevant for today's society? Right. What is it about these plays that still speak to us? And then how are they sort of creating these frame stories like this traveling salesman um, or in another play that they did, it, which is The Innocent Prince or El Principe Inocente? They have two guys in a Mexican jail cell who tell each other this story to pass the time. And the story seems pretty innocuous. But when you start to dig deeper, you realize it's about if you're rich and powerful, you can get away with whatever you want. And the frame story is that these two guys are in jail for doing things like stealing bread to feed their family. And that's going to be much more punished than someone who's rich and famous who maybe rapes somebody or murders somebody but can get away with it because he has friends in the right places. So these are things that have been going on for a very long time <laughs> yeah. that are still relevant. And that's why these these plays are um, still popular and, and becoming more popular. 100%. Well, I yeah. mean, like El Disengaño is like... I think there's not probably a person right now on earth that does not feel this disenchantment with systems, mm -hmm. especially after the pandemic. Like everyone is being like a lot of these systems we have don't work. And now like we just had a huge wake up call. Um, so that's really interesting. So something I wanted to talk about um, 
with these adaptations is Spanish, the actual language. Mm-hmm. So for anyone that doesn't know about Spanish and or like French is also like a highly gendered language. Um, how do new concepts of gender or gender roles or non-binary genders play into adapting things in a language that is very gendered? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's an interesting question. And it's actually a question that's being debated in what we call um, like the Real Academia, which is this sort of overseeing, like think about the Oxford Dictionary, right? They have like sort of a board that oversees the English language and says, okay, yeah, this word now, like emoji was put into the dictionary a few <laughs> years ago, right? Like this word now is a legit English word. Um, so we have similar things in Spanish speaking cultures. And the big one is this Real Academia, which is based in Spain. Uh, and they have unequivocally said like no gender neutral pronouns, right? So they're very much like, we're not going to do gender neutral stuff. We're not going to change the endings of things. Because as Brittany knows, because she's taken Spanish with mm-hmm. me, the table is feminine. Why? Because it is, right? And so every adjective that goes along with that has a feminine ending. And we do the same with people, right? If you are considered to be female presenting, somebody will use all of the female endings of adjectives and verbs. Well, not verbs, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, pronouns and everything else. If you present masculine, then they'll use the masculine ones. And there's people in, you know, more just like you and me who are like, but there are people who want to use gender neutral things. So how do we do that? And that's been a bigger movement in places like Argentina and Mexico. Um, and it's being used in the street. And that's where the the change to language really comes from, right? Emoji is not because the board members of Oxford were like, <laughs> hey, let's start using the word emoji. No, people like us started using the word emoji and it had to be incorporated. Yeah. So it's a slow change, but it is happening. Um, and it's certainly like in these plays, to get back to that part of it, uh, you do have characters who cross-dress, more women to male cross-dressing. Um, and there is one in particular who was a real person. We call her the Lieutenant Nun. Her name was Carolina de Arrauso, who decided at 15 she didn't want to become a nun. She was put in a convent because her mother had passed away and her father was like, I can't deal with all these children. And so this one's going to, you know, the nunnery and this one's going into the army and whatever. And she just thought like, no, this is not the life for me. So she runs away and cuts her hair off and, you know, has some thread and needles and clothing, you know, sort of like refashions her clothing and and gets on a ship and goes to the new world and becomes a soldier. Um, So it's certainly happening. The Mulan story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but these things were really happening. And Mulan is based on a, a real story as well, right? So, yeah, you get these people who definitely don't fit into that binary. And, and we have to figure out, especially for today, ways to talk about them that is respectful and, and understanding of their real life situation. Yeah. And they don't just like there's no just ellos because like in. English a lot of times we, <laughs> right. we use like they them but like you don't use like ellos or like ustedes because then you'd have to match it to all the plural yeah. <laughs> verbs and adjectives and everything so there is a yay with an e instead of so in, in, we have l for him mm-hmm. or he he ella for she and then a yay with an e or a yo just a single okay um, is, is, that's some of the ways that people are starting to do it. You've probably also seen things like Latinx with the mm-hmm. X 
Um, that seems to go in and out of fashion because people are like, but how do I pronounce that X in, in Spanish? So the E or O ending seem to be more possible at this point. And this is the people adapting to this, like that want this change that's just not being recognized. That and people who, who consider themselves allies, right? Like my friend Fernando, who's in FA3, he uses the E ending almost all the time now, especially if there's a mixed group of people. Um, like if he'll write me and some of my other colleagues who are women, he'll use that E ending instead of of the O because in, in Spanish, the masculine is the neutral. And so if you have a group of people who include at least one man, you're gonna use always masculine endings to talk about that group of people. So this is a way to kind of get away from that. Wonderful, I love that. Yeah, it's a really interesting time to like be alive. I mean, I know all times are interesting <laughs> times to be alive as we talked about um, like Don Quixote and fighting the power. Um, but yeah, I think right now, um, especially in those gender languages, it's really interesting to watch what's happening um, because it's something we've all had to adapt to and learn. And I think it was a little bit easier maybe for English speakers. And but I, I didn't even, it didn't even occur to me about thinking like me just being a primary English speaking person. I, I didn't even, it didn't even cross my mind of, of like Spanish where it has, it's, it's a very genderized um, language. Mm -hmm. So this is a very great conversation. Yeah. Um, so when you're doing research, um, something that jumped out to me was meshing scholarly and creative activity. Uh, what does that mean? How do you mesh the two? Um, and what has your experience been? Um, tell us a little bit about, about some of these meshings. Yeah. So especially now that I'm working more with artists, I feel obligated to include them in some way. Um, and so it's, it's one thing to like write about somebody who's been dead for 400 years. I can't ask Miguel de Cervantes questions about why do you use this word here? Why'd you decide to do this thing? Um, but I feel like today, if I'm going to work with artists who are living today, their experiences are really important and, and why they choose to adapt certain plays, why they choose certain ways of adapting things I can theorize about. Right. But until I have a conversation with them, I can't be sure if that's right or not. Right. So last summer I was supposed to go to Mexico and um, actually work with the company F.A. Tres in person. Um, and one of the things we wanted to do was to adapt a, a work together and then work through the process of putting it into an actual play, like being on stage. Um, and I wanted to sort of document that process. And obviously with the pandemic, I mm -hmm. could not go to Mexico last summer. And so I had two students from McEwen, myself and Fernando, work um, digitally like over Google Meet and Zoom to adapt the actual text. So we took a text by a woman, Sor Juan Inés de la Cruz, um, who was a, a nun actually in Mexico during the colonial period, who wrote these plays um, as sort of her outlet. She was a very intelligent woman. She didn't fit into the norm. And, and one of the ways that women who didn't fit into the norm could do more with themselves was to go into a monastery if they weren't willing to dress up as men and go be soldiers. <laughs> so they could learn, like that's where they could get an education, right? So she was able to continue studying. She grew up with a family who was very supportive of her. She was allowed to read like all of her grandfather's books that he had this massive library. 
And she just wanted to do more and she wanted to be able to do these things and write and whatever. And so she ended up going into a convent in order to do that. Um, so we adapted the play over Google Meet basically for the summer of 2020. And then it kind of got backburnered because, as I'm sure you guys know, being in class and teaching and learning during the pandemic was um, sort of an all-encompassing thing. <laughs> yeah, a constant <laughs> activity. Yeah. So it kind of got backburnered for a while. And then in April, I got some funding from the Faculty of Arts and Science Dean's Office called their Just-in-Time Fund to do things over the summer. And I was able to support... F.A. Trace, along with another company, um, Teatro de los Sotanos, which is the basement theater company, um, they to put on an adaptation. So they created a digital, sort of a short, it was about 45 minutes long, for this conference that um, I was organizing that just happened in early July. So they have sent me videos, like YouTube videos, basically, of the their adaptation process, um, but it's not quite the same as being there. I want to be there and be there in the moment when they make that decision like, oh, we're going to do this this way, right? And then I can be like, but why? Because now I'm watching them like a month later and I'm like, but why? And they're like, I don't really remember. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm curious about... so. My background is technology mm -hmm. in music and in theater. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you think technology has improved or can you speak to that even? I mean, so, like you're taking these old plays from the 16th century and bringing them forward to today. Obviously, technology has improved significantly. Has technology changed these plays on how you can present them? And is it for the better? There's so much there. Um, I've actually been working on the last sort of six months, what I've been working on has been these digital adaptations, right? Because when the pandemic hit, as I'm sure you guys know, the arts were hit big time, right? Not just theater, but like every. It was a devastating blow to, uh, to many industries and the live yeah. entertainment industry was one of them for sure. Yeah. So the, the groups that I know in Mexico, I've, I've talked to them about this, and they actually made the decision before the Mexican government did to shutter the theaters. They just felt like, we, and then like a few days later, the government was like, okay, everything's shut down anyway. Um, and, and so they felt like as, as theater practitioners, that was sort of part of their moral duty towards their audience, right? It was to, to take care of people. But it sort of meant like, now what, right? So within a month, you start to see people putting things online, whether it's recordings that they have. You know, you always make a recording just for posterity of, of one of your shows. But those are not meant to be seen by the public, right? Um, and then you see people doing things like on Facebook Live or YouTube Live. Um, and it gets to the point where the, the groups that I've worked with have done things like use Snap Camera to create different like costumes. Like I said, they do very oh, minimalist stuff. That's very cool. <laughs> yeah. And so instead of like changing his hat, he's changing his snap camera filter. Way cool. Yeah. The question is, is it theater? Right. And that's the question that we've been talking about as both academics and artists throughout this whole thing is, is this theater? Because you don't have that live feedback, you know, like a YouTube chat during a live YouTube thing or, or a Zoom chat or whatever, it's not the same feedback as hearing the audience laugh or hearing them clap or gasp or whatever it is, right? There is a uh, an interesting, they, they are um, projector artists. 
that have recently stream started streaming on Twitch, um, where they set up. It's in their house, but mm -hmm. they set up screens and uh, overhead projectors, and they do puppet shows. Um, one person will be composing music live, like improv on the spot, and the other person, like it's all of this is improv, but mm -hmm. it's theater and then interactive chat, um, and then you can get you know chat commands where if they type a certain thing like exclamation point clap. It actually makes a sound bite oh, saying clapping or laughing <laughs> and like, yeah, so it they've... You almost get like a laugh track, like yeah. those 90s sitcoms. Exactly. <laughs> so it's really cool how audience members can participate um, and all these new technologies that are becoming... A lot of these are developed extremely quickly because right. of the pandemic. So I'm, I don't know. It's a cool, That's it's a cool very, world. Yeah. We need a little like clap button on our... <laughs> on our Wait for it. Wait. Oh, hold uh -oh. on. Um, oh no! <laughs> Sorry, I had to. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, that one is my favorite one. Um, so yeah, when you're studying these adaptations, how do the adaptations differ? Like you're talking about the what was the play by the nun? Uh, so it's called Los Empeños de una Casa, or the Trials of a House. So okay. they all get trapped in a house and they have to get out. I mean, that sounds escape room. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm just really curious, like what you. Like, what exactly were you studying? How they were adapted? Um, mm -hmm. And what did you find? Like, how how are these plays being adapted to make them? Like, what does a modern audience want that maybe begs the question, like, why are they being adapted and not just performed? So that's an excellent question. So even going back to, like, the late 90s, we have theorists who say, like, we can't tell you what an audience wants anymore because our audience are becoming so diverse. Um, and I think that's part of the reason that I'm so interested in this kind of theater. And, and I'm going to keep working with, I'm trying to find actually right now, Latinx artists in Canada and the U S who are doing adaptations um, because our societies are so diverse now. Like it's not just Shakespeare anymore. It shouldn't be just Shakespeare anymore. It should be all of these things and they should be accessible to, to, so many people, right? Whether that's in translation or with subtitles or just, I mean, I've gone to plays in languages that I don't speak and just been blown away, right? The last time that I was in Almagro, which would be now 2019, uh, I saw a Spanish play done in Estonian. And they had subtitles, but it's a play that I've studied a lot. I did not need the subtitles. They were so good that I knew exactly what was happening and, and what, you know, what was going to happen next. And it was fabulous. So I think that these things are going to show us that we are more connected than we think we are and that the people around us have this historical, cultural um, patrimony that we didn't even realize. Mm -hmm. So over the last few years, I've had a, a great opportunity to work with Cirque du Soleil and doing working with a few shows that um, primarily their dialogue or their s things are in Spanish so that they have a, a show called Lucia and uh, all the singing is in Spanish and and um, but you're right there's certain aspects of the theater where it's like me as an English speaking person I don't actually I still enjoy so much of it I don't understand any of the lyrics um, and then the other show uh, Corteo um, it also also speaking Spanish but just little dialogue spots and a little bit of the lyrics, but 
Yeah, it just it comes right through. The message just comes right through in the performative mm-hmm. art. It's Absolutely. like opera. Like I grew up listening to opera with my grandparents or whatever. And I mean, I fell in love with Pavarotti by the time I was 10 years old. <laughs> no idea what he means, but I can definitely sing along to mm-hmm. like those hits. So I think with theater, um, with music, a lot of times it's transcendent because it's powerful emotionally. Um, but I think that's really fun, like a Spanish play in Estonian mm-hmm. in Spain. Yep. Very cool. All right. <laughs> um, so, yeah. How was this specific play adapted? Like what changed? Um, the one that we worked on last yeah, summer? Yeah, the one that you just worked on last summer. So the first step is sort of to pare the text down, right? So a lot of these plays were meant to be done as almost like all day things. And it, they were done more during the day um, because you didn't have electric lights, right? So you couldn't do things at night so much. Um, but they would have three acts, but each act would have sort of these interludes in between these shorter plays, uh, sometimes had nothing to do with the actual full play itself. Um, and so a lot of times these are three hour long plays. We no longer want to sit through three hour long <laughs> plays, right? I don't know if anybody's watched the five hour Kenneth Branagh Hamlet, but it's a lot, right? Like it's well done, but we, we don't have that attention span anymore. Right. And Fiesta's so in the middle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh no, that totally happened. Like it'd be a all day thing and you would, you know, whatever you'd go away and come back and people would have fights in the middle of the thing whatever (laughs) yeah if you want to talk about how things have changed (laughs) but um yeah so we first step was to sort of pare down the actual text itself um and that's what we did the the two McEwen students myself and, and Fernando last year and then the the companies took it and they put this frame story on it so their frame story for this play is they're waiting in a train station to leave and the train keeps getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And so it's this whole commentary and the play has got a whole commentary on confinement. And some of that came out, I think, of our experience through the pandemic. Like, what do we do now? And so they're confined in this train station. They can't really leave because the train might come at any second, but it's not here yet. Oh. And so they decide to tell this story to pass the time. And there's a professor there who might be based on somebody that they know. Um, And so she says, like, no, no, I'll, like, read the text because I understand Sor Juana from a deep personal level. And they sort of act it out with her voiceover. Um, And then they also have a musician. So this is one of their biggest plays. They have four people on stage. (laughs) So it's the two actors, um, the woman who's the professor narrating, and then the musician making all sort of the sound effects. So in the play, are they telling the story of the play? Is the professor, like... So it's not it's meta. Yeah, it's meta. It's a play that's in a play. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, exactly that's a lot the of what they you do. were telling earlier of the two men in the jail cell. Is yeah. that is that a common theme in For this particular group, yeah, this is definitely their sort of MO, right? Is they create this frame story that then requires them to tell a story to the audience. And so here it's the the story of these women who are trapped in this house and they are themselves trapped in this train station. So That's wow. very it, it reminds me a little bit of a TV show I watched growing up um, was called Are You Afraid of the Dark? Mm-hmm. And it was a, a group of people that would come together and they would just tell stories and the episode would be the story that they're telling each other mm-hmm. at the campfire. Yeah, same idea. Yeah. Okay. Um, so how did you connect with this theater company? 
So that was in El Paso, Texas, uh, I believe in 2016. So um, prior to the pandemic, everything, you know, has that caveat. Uh, we would go this group called the Association for Hispanic Classical Theater to El Paso, Texas, because El Paso has um, sort of this protected space called the Chamisal, which is um, or was disputed territory between Mexico and the U.S. for a very long time until the 1960s because the river changed, right? So at one point, the Chamisal was on the side of the river that is the U.S. side. And then at another point, it was on the Mexico side. And I can't remember right now which is which currently. Um, but so it's a national park. And every year they held a Siglo de Oro, which is the golden age of Spain, uh, theater festival. And so we went one year and we saw some really terrible plays. And then the last night we were like, should we go to this play? And I had been asked to um, do a review of the play for a journal. And so I was like, well, I have to go. So if I have to go, I'm making all of you go, right? Um, and so my friends, who are also my colleagues, we, we have a working group that, we, that kind of came out actually of this particular play, um, went to the play and I was like, it's gonna be weird. I read the play, the play's weird. It's not a well-known play. There's no like modern versions, like editions of it that we can read. And then they have this whole thing about them being in jail. Like, I just don't understand. And we watched it and we were just absolutely blown away. And so at this theater festival, they also have sort of a meet and greet with the actors afterwards where you can ask them questions and the audience can can interact with them. And so we went up to them afterwards and we we're like, you guys have to come back. We're having like the after party for this conference. It's our last night here and you have to come back and have a glass of wine and talk about this. And we just became sort of instant friends. They're just really cool guys. Um, they're very like modest about what they do, but they're absolute geniuses. And so I ended up working on that play. I wrote the review and then that out of that came the idea for the social justice book. So that chapter that I wrote in that book is about that play and how they're doing this, you know, commentary on current Mexican issues through this golden age Spanish play. Well, we're going to talk about um, <laughs> your that work, um, your other book on chocolate, which mm -hmm. I'm very, very, very excited to talk about. Uh, but before we do that, we're just going to take a quick little break. Yeah, right before we take a quick break, I was about to say, just as a little aside, we can we can cut it here and take a break. But I want to have this conversation is um, so as a as a McEwen University professor. Has there been any lee, um, not leeway, any, any, are you, are you in connection with our theater department and can, and I would love to be, <laughs> um, I did work with, um, Heather Fitzsimmons Frey last year on the interdisciplinary dialogue. And so we actually had, um, one of the actors from that group, as well as a bunch of other artists do one of the three dialogues for the interdisciplinary dialogue on creativity and confinement and sort of like creativity and crisis and what happens when we have a crisis and, and how do we respond to that creatively. So, yeah. That's fantastic. Like my whole objective at, uni at this university is collaboration, uh, just bringing so many people together. And it, I, I would love to ask if there is a, a collaboration that you'd want to work on, like is there more that you want to do with our theater department to bring some of those visions or perhaps even like a guest from that group actually coming here and doing some performances. 
So, yes, <laughs> is the short answer. Don't get me wrong. I know the hurdles. Yeah. I, I know the roadblocks. Yeah. No, I would love to. And in fact, um, one of my colleagues from that working group that came out of El Paso and I are just in the beginning stages of a new project, which we... Um, I'm hopefully not, you know, giving anything away, but we want to start working with uh, Latinx artists in North America. So Canada, the U.S. and and Mexico. And we want to sort of support them. And one of the things we would love to do towards the end of that project is to bring them maybe to McEwen to do a little festival of theater and and have all these international theater festival. That's an amazing idea. What is the first step in letting us like making that happen? <laughs> uh, yeah. Any connections with the theater department? Anybody who would be interested in, you know, collaborating on bringing um, companies who maybe are doing things in, in Spanish, maybe in Spanglish, maybe in English um, from these early modern plays. And, you know, I would I'm, I'm going to try and apply for some grant money. So one of the things that I have had in mind is to have theater students involved in doing like the lighting and the sound and and things like that. So yeah, we have some very talented students and I am just boasting because I was, I've taken some of those theater classes. Well, if you guys um, want to do Romeo and Juliet, I can do the one little monologue uh, (laughs) by the friar for you in Spanish. Wonderful. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much. We are going to take a quick break. This has been Research Recasted, uh, your knowledge mobilization podcast of McEwen University. I would also like to take a quick moment and say this. Honestly, I almost lived off cookies for the first year of my degree. Working full time and being a full time student, meal planning was a pipe dream. So I love that I could go to the university convenience store and grab a coffee and a bloom cookie. They didn't feel hyper-processed while still being full of those delicious sugars that I needed to survive that three-hour afternoon lecture. Plus, it felt like a reward for just making it through the day. And who doesn't need that, am I right? Bloom cookies are 100% vegan and nut-free, and they're made right here in Edmonton, meaning you're supporting local and reducing your carbon footprint. You can pick some up at the McEwen Convenience Store or at the Bloom Cookie Storefront on 124th Street. So go get a cookie and then go get that bread. Welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast that gets right to the source. So this last year, mm-hmm. you worked on two books. One, um, you authored a book on chocolate, mm-hmm. uh, which we're going to talk about in one second. Uh, Let's talk about you... it now. <laughs> no, no, no. I want to save the juicy. My husband did say I should bring chocolate with me. And I was like, I don't know if that's weird. As soon as you, so you came in, you, you, you got settled and then you'd left and and soon as you left and you were out of earsight, or I said I didn't see any chocolate in her hands. <laughs> I'm very upset. I think we're I'll we're not quite later. out of the woods, and I feel like sharing food and handshakes yeah. are gonna have to wait. Un poquito, <laughs> mas tiempo. Um, that was my dad's very good Spanish accent there. Um, so. Yeah, before we talk about chocolate, which you were the sole author on, I want to talk about the social justice book. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about that, about your chapter? Um, and yeah. Yeah. So like I said earlier, in, in 2016, when we were at this conference in El Paso and we saw this play, it got us thinking. So I, I have been working more or less regularly over the last five years or so with 
um, for other academics, all based in the U.S. Um, I was actually currently, currently, no, I'm currently here. I was at that time in the U.S. as well. Uh, I was based in at a school in Virginia. Um, and then, so we started talking about this and, and how these issues actually have, as we spoke about earlier, have been around a really long time. And we might talk about them a little differently or think about them a little differently now, but certainly these these things are coming up in these plays. Um, and so we, from there, sort of devised this idea to have a smaller group of people get together in a symposium at one of the universities in Ohio uh, and talk about, like, what are these issues? Where are we seeing them in the plays at the time? And then where are we also seeing them come up even more in these more modern adaptations? Um, and so that book kind of came out of, of those conversations. Um, and so we have the first half of the book talking about the plays themselves. So we have several scholars from from around, mostly around the U.S. Um, talking about the plays themselves. The second half, which is where my chapter is, is talking about the modern adaptations and how they pick up on these these themes. And then the last part of the book is some uh, interviews that we did with different practitioners who are working on these things, both in Spain and Latin America and the U.S. today. Okay, because um, I know you mentioned that humanities work is often like very solitary um, work. So what has it been like um, as someone in the humanities doing so much collaborative work? Like how is your, um, what have you learned? Um, and how has that community building kind of changed the way you do research? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've learned so much. Like I've learned so much working with artists because I'm getting a very different perspective on these plays and, and why they're choosing to still work on them. Um, so that's been super interesting. But also just working with my colleagues in mostly in the U.S., um, it's 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 totally changed the way I do research, right? Like we we now have regular, I guess now Zoom meetings. Back then it was Skype, but we have regular meetings to talk about what we're working on, even if it's just our individual projects. Um, we exchange drafts of things and get feedback before we send it out to the dreaded peer review process. <laughs> um, and it's a, it's a much gentler, nicer thing for me to get that feedback from one of them who I trust and I know, and I know they, they want the best for me than from some, you know, anonymous random person who's like, this is garbage. Um, so it, it's changed so many things. And, and I've started working more on writing things with other people. Um, and so, you know, I've had articles come out where um, there's more than one author on it, where I'm working with one of those colleagues. I've also co-written things with students in the past. I'm actually working on an article with one of the students who did the adaptation with us last summer. Um, and so, it, it, yeah, it's just totally changed everything. Okay. And this, the, the book, sorry, what's the full title? Social Justice in Spanish Golden Age Theater. Okay. Book titles change a lot when you send them off to publishers. So mm -hmm. like sometimes I get confused, but I'm pretty sure that's the current title. Okay. And yeah, what? so you looked at the plays mm -hmm. and then what did you like find? Like what, if you're going to read the book, like what are you going to find? What is it going to teach you about golden age Spanish theater? So I think what it's going to teach you is that these um, things that we're still grappling today, questions of gender, questions of race, intersectionality, pol politics, all of these things were also being talked about then. And we can use these plays to talk about them now. Right. And so I think that's the big takeaway. 
Okay. Um, Dylan, do you want to talk about <laughs> chocolate? I would love to talk about chocolate. Let's talk about chocolate. So chocolate, you are the sole author. Yes. All you. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us all about it? Please and thank you. Okay. So it's called Chocolate, How a New World Commodity uh-oh, conquered <laughs> Spanish literature. Um, and basically it tracks from the pre-Columbian that, you know, before Spaniards show up in the new world, how they were looking at chocolate, how they were using chocolate. Um, and then through the contact where the conquistadors go there and they see like, oh, these people are drinking this weird drink. What are they doing with it? Why are they doing that with it? Um, even seeing them use it as money and thinking like, oh, this is really interesting uh, to when it gets to Spain and how that sort of gets incorporated into the Spanish culture, right? Because there's sort of this, ooh, that's a scary new thing. That's from a place that we think is kind of different from us. What do we do with this? And so there become several debates that show up. So you see a medical debate, like, is chocolate okay for Europeans to drink or is it going to hurt their constitution in some way? Because they have this whole theory of the humors, right? And you have to balance, you know, the the bile and the blood and all the these wind. things in the wind <laughs> and who knows, right? And so they're like, is this going to affect us negatively in some way? Because we grew up in not a tropical climate and therefore we'll have a different balance of these humors so there's that debate there's also a religious debate like is this okay to drink from a religious standpoint especially during times of fast which were a big deal back then right we don't really especially in in christian um cultures we don't really fast so much anymore we have things like lent where we maybe give up chocolate for 40 days because we want to feel virtuous about ourselves but we don't stop eating right whereas they were like okay during times of fast, certain things are okay. Water's fine. Wine was fine. Is chocolate as a drink too nutritious? Is it going to give us too much energy? Because there's all these stories of these people, indigenous people who could drink chocolate and then work out in the field all day without stopping to have a, a break. So is that too much for a fast? Um, and then I also talk about the economics of it. So how it was both an economic currency practically in the in the quote-unquote new world um, and then what it does for the economics when it is brought over to Spain and and starts to be distributed amongst Spanish people Uh, and then finally I end with what I call the darker side of chocolate uh, which is the sort of sexuality magic all these things that are seen as sort of like this it could it be used for nefarious purposes Okay. Um, I, I mean, historically, chocolate has just been, you know, that's like the main gift that you give to someone that you love. Yeah. Yeah. So it has there's that de- connotation there's, today. There's, there's definitely some romantic things going mm-hmm. on with chocolate. Um. Yeah. So I want to know what, how, why, <laughs> like why chocolate? What, like, was there a moment? That you just decided to study this? Like what? I mean, why not chocolate? I mean, I guess why not? (laughs) But like, I'm very curious because it's such a broad topic, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I understand, I guess, the way that you are approaching it from a historical, um, like studying Spanish Mm -hmm. and Spain and chocolate there. But like, 
I just want to know how you came to this idea and then how you made it happen. So back when I was doing my dissertation many years ago now, um, I was working on the theater and how Latin America as the quote unquote new world and the indigenous peoples were being seen and portrayed on the Spanish stage. And I came across a play um, by the, well, about the first American beatified saint whose name is Santa Rosa de Peru. So she was a woman in um, Lima, Peru, who was seen as having somehow intervened in the battle between the indigenous people who wanted to take Lima back from the Spanish uh, conquering army. And she, you know, prayed to Jesus and Mary and, and somehow the indigenous people just kind of like went away. And so she became the first uh, sainted person from Latin America because of that um, in about 1665, I believe. Uh, and so they, a play was written about her um, by two playwrights um, because one of them died halfway through writing it and the other one sort of picked it back up. Uh, and in the third act of this play, which is by the second playwright, um, he writes about her use of chocolate as like a medicinal thing. And I thought this was fascinating. And so I wrote a part of my dissertation um, because I had sort of three chapters and one focused on women, but it didn't really fit. And so my my dissertation advisor at the time, William Eggington, um, was like, this like it's an interesting story, but it just doesn't fit. And so I ended up taking it out. Um, and if you know anything about, or you want to know anything about doing research, don't ever like just, you know, hit the delete button on that, <laughs> open up another document and be like stuff I took out better. of this thing put it aside. And then like five years later, come back and be like, I really want to talk about this. Uh, and so in 2015, I went to the modern language association in Vancouver. That's the big conference, um, for anybody who does anything with any of the languages, uh, it's where they used to, now it's sort of because of not just COVID, but lots of reasons it's starting to get away from this, but they used to do all the job, the big job interviews there. And so I was going to give this paper um, as part of, of a panel about food in literature. Uh, and I actually got an email from a publisher and they were like, we want to talk to you about like turning this into a book. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I'd never really thought about doing that. Um, and so I ended up talking to a bunch of different publishers and the University of Toronto Press was like, yes, we want this. Like, we will give you an advanced contract and you can, you know, when you're going on the job market, tell people you have a contract with us. And I was like, OK, sure. And so I had to figure out how to write a whole book about it. Yeah, because like research done, like the research you did for this book. Um, how is it different than the research that you've done, like as a researcher through the rest of your academic like career? So this is much more like, you know, we talked a lot about working with artists. This is a much more like solitary project, right? This is, I went to the archives in Spain and the National Library of Spain and, you know, they brought out 500 year old pieces of paper and let me touch them. And that was super cool. Um, but it was like, you had to go and find these sources. And sometimes a lot of these things are not even very well cataloged. So at one point I had asked for something and they ended up bringing out like 11 boxes oh of God. papers that nobody had ever sorted through. And I was just like, uh, I don't know what I'm looking for. Um, and so, yeah, so you just find all these sources and then start writing. And something um, like even with like English, 
if you're doing historical research, I feel, and you're talking like 16th century, like pre, I mean, like when does the book start? When's the earliest literature that you were looking at? Like what time period? So the earliest stuff I'm looking at technically is probably the, um, the codices from Latin America. So these are the scrolls where they did their pictographic writing. Um, and so you're looking at things that were actually transcribed later when the Spanish um, conquistadors are there. Uh, but that stuff dates back to pre-Columbian times. Um, I looked at things from the early 1500s uh, right up to, I go up to sort of the mid-1700s, basically. I'm, Yeah, like the thing I'm trying to get at is, even for someone, like English is my first language, mm-hmm. but if I was trying to go through and look for references to a food in papers and scrolls from the 1500s, I probably wouldn't know what I was looking at a lot of the time. So like, what was that like in Spanish? Like how much has Spanish changed? And were there moments where you're like, I have no idea, like I've never heard of this word before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So Spanish has changed significantly and even our writing styles have changed significantly, right? So previously you would get things where people just would write continuously. Like there's no breaks between words. And so you have to kind of like figure out like, oh, this word is this. There's also the writing styles, right? So there's whole um, disciplines that study the writing style of a certain period. And so for me, I never really did any of that stuff. It was just kind of like a squinting and learning process. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it is very, it can be very difficult and very daunting at first, but the more you do it, the more practice, the more you can kind of decipher things. Okay. Um, so what did you find about chocolate? Like what was the most interesting thing that, that came out of your work, like for you personally? Um, I mean, there's so many things, but probably the most interesting document I found was in the uh, archive of the Indies, which is in Seville, because they used to hold everything there. So they would bring all of the ships would come in to Seville, which isn't actually on the water, but it has a river that kind of like comes in from the Atlantic. Uh, And they would store it there and they would, you know, keep records of like, you know, this much chocolate came in on this ship and this much whatever came on in this ship. Um, But the most interesting document was actually about a divorce case, which technically you couldn't get divorced then. But her husband had basically abandoned her and he had already used up all of her dowry and she wanted some of it back. And she had heard that he had chocolate coming in on this ship and it was so valuable that it actually was the replacement value of her dowry. And so she went to court to tell the court, like, don't give that to him when it comes in. Give it to me. Okay. And was it successful? <laughs> did she get the chocolate? I think she did. Oh, that's so amazing. That's a win. I want a shipload of chocolate. Right? So that means that not only, because you mentioned like chocolate as a currency, mm-hmm. um, but that the conquistadors noticed that the indigenous population was using it, but then it goes on to be used as a currency in Spain as well. I wouldn't call it a currency in Spain, but it had enough value that she could then take that and either use it as um, social currency because it was expected by that time that if somebody important came to your house, you would offer them a chocolate drink and it had to be the right chocolate, right? There were different like levels of how good chocolate. I I mean, mean, we know. We still, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
And so, you know, if it was from Oaxaca, it was like considered top notch. And so people would even like kind of mix some Oaxaca chocolate with like cheaper chocolate to try and fool their guests. But it was considered something you were supposed to do. So she could do that or she could have sold it to other people and made money that way. Open up a chocolate shop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, something I was kind of like looking through um, was that at one point in Spain, chocolate gets so popular that they ban it in mm -hmm. the court. Uh, okay. So there's two things. One is it becomes disruptive to mass. So like in the Catholic church. Oh, okay. And so the, the Archbishop of Toledo at one point says, like, no more chocolate in the churches because they were basically having their servants bring them continuous, like, cups of chocolate freshly made. And it was just like a cacophony of people coming in and out of the church during mass. And he was like, OK, no more of that. No more drinking and eating. But they specifically mentioned chocolate. And then the, I think the thing you're thinking about with the court is you have um, the last Habsburg king who is known as Carlos the Cursed. And they believe his mother, this is totally not true, probably, <laughs> but they believe she poisoned him using chocolate because chocolate in the darker side chapter, as I talk about, was used to sort of mask a lot of potions and like other flavors. So you could, you know, put stuff in it that you could then use to curse that person. They'd never know. They'd just be like, oh, delicious chocolate. Mm -hmm. um, but he was supposedly like obsessed with chocolate. And so at one point, the um, these guys who are kind of like keeping an eye on things, right? And making sure that the monarchy isn't spending too much of, of the royal coffer, right? So they... They go and they say, like, you have to sort of cut back on all this ostentatious stuff that you've been doing in the core. And one of the things they mention is chocolate. And they're like, you're, you're drinking too much chocolate. It's costing us too much money. So just, you know. Just chill it. Dial chill it back a little, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Cool yeah. it. Um, so I have a question then. Did you see any kind of corresponding, like, people are drinking, I mean, this woman's drinking continuously chocolate. What is the chocolate drink made of? Mm -hmm. And like... That's what I want to know. Do they have like a, a, does, how does the body shape change? Is there, <laughs> um, like, are people drinking too much chocolate? Ah, uh, that's a good question. That's not something I came across. Okay. Of course, as you probably know from like Renaissance art, the sort of more voluptuous woman was considered, mm -hmm. uh, more beautiful and, and more moneyed and everything like that. So that probably wasn't too much of a problem. Yeah. I'm just like super curious. Cause like when I think of hot chocolate, obviously it's very, very different like mm -hmm. what was the drink that they're drinking in 16th century like spain made of yeah so it's probably a lot thicker right so they would use um thickening agents uh in the new world like in mexico and things that would be like ground up corn um and things like that in spain it was probably sometimes they added eggs to it sometimes they added milk um, but it was a lot thicker than what we would drink. And even if you go to Spain today, the hot chocolate that you get is super thick. It's for dipping your churro in mm -hmm. and like ma basically making yourself a chocolate dipped donut, yeah, right? Like a ganache. Yeah. So, but when it gets to Spain, one of the things that changes is how sweet it is. Um, Spaniards at that time have a, a pretty big sweet tooth. Whereas in, in Mexico, uh, where it primarily was being used, it was a lot less sweetened. You maybe had chilies added to it right? The maize, things like that. They weren't so worried, maybe a little bit of honey or something, but like they weren't so worried about sweetening. Whereas in Spain, it becomes a lot sweeter and they take out some of like the more spicy 
ingredients, but vanilla, which also comes from Mexico, is a big hit in Spain as well. Yeah, I definitely love like chili and chocolate mm -hmm. as a combination. It's fantastic. I've never been to Mexico, haven't been there yet, but yeah, definitely I'm the chocolate and like the hot chocolate is something to go for. Yeah. The whole thing when I was uh, with Cirque du Soleil Luzia was our, I was in, in the VIP catering as the executive chef. Um, they, the entire menu was like, um, kind of like a Mexican themed uh, finger foods. Mm -hmm. um, tostadas and, and uh, little tacos and uh, ceviche and, and some mm -hmm. wonderful things like that. And so I now wish that I would have had added some for our desserts we did churros as well but it would have had like some peppered cho mm -hmm. uh, chocolate some chile chocolate chili chocolate but you even still get that like more savory use of chocolate in mexico through like the moles and stuff like mm -hmm. that right so they're they're still using it in a more savory way a lot of times so yeah definitely okay um so the medical debate i want to talk a little bit about like chocolate as medicine because mm -hmm. i think it's something it's an idea that's kind of persisted and i feel like people do like even if it's just like that comfort food or like chocolate makes me feel better mm -hmm. um what did you find on on the medical aspect of chocolate how it was used and maybe how it still has this myth surrounding it yeah so one of the things so that play that i talked about the very first one that sort of caught my attention about this um, she is supposed to be fasting to show how devoted she is to to Jesus. And she's complaining all the time that her stomach hurts, of course, because she's probably hungry. Um, but she claims it's, you know, whatever, it's it's something else. And it's her servant who's like, you know, just, just a little bit of chocolate will help you with that hunger pain. It'll take that pain away. And she's like very resistant to this idea, but eventually she gives in. And so he goes and finds some chocolate for the two of them. And, and there's always an ongoing joke in Spanish theater at this time that the servant like is always complaining about being hungry <laughs> no matter what. And, and that they're, you know, that all they get is the scraps from what their master eats. And because she never eats, cause she's always fasting. He's <laughs> like, I literally never eat. And so he, you know, she takes like this tiny bit of chocolate and he's just like drinking it down and drinking it down. And he's like, you know, her father, is a, an old man and he's like this will make you young again you should drink it and he's like no i don't want it. he's like fine i'll drink your part and it, he claims that he also cures his toothache that he's had and so there's there's all those ideas going on um and then in the actual like medical debates there's this like is it good for us is it not good for us and and sort of the consensus eventually becomes like you can drink a little bit but you shouldn't be overdoing it right and certainly not to the extent that people seem to be overdoing it in Spain once it, it catches on. Okay, because, yeah, I know now it's like dark chocolate is good. And now you have 48 different percentages of chocolate. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, <laughs> I want to balance that because as much as I want health food chocolate, I also like do not care particularly for like 70%, 80% mm -hmm. cocoa. It's a little wild. So... Um, did you look at anything that kind of connected to like this modern perspective on chocolate? Cause we're still talking about is mm -hmm. chocolate good for us or bad for us? Right. 
<laughs> yeah. And these things like go back and forth, right? When I was a kid, butter was really bad for us. And so yeah. everybody ate margarine. And now we're like, <laughs> now that we're was like, just chemicals. Like, what were we putting in our <laughs> bodies? whipped chemicals. Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's a bunch of recipes that come out from this time period and in, in some of these medical treatises. Um, and most of them are like, it's good for you as long as you're not adding a ridiculous amount of stuff for it, which is kind of what you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're just putting like a little bit of milk to kind of like make it not so thick or whatever, that's fine. But when you start adding like sugar and vanilla and chile and whatever else you want to put in it, that's where you're getting into possibly unhealthy territory. Did you try any of the recipes? Like, were you like at home cooking up these 16th century? Like, I feel like we should have had a cart ready like, <laughs> yeah. in the back. Yeah. And, like, actually, we decided to bring out a couple recipes ourselves. Um, it's really hard because the chocolate that they got was like pure chocolate. Like they basically took the beans and ground them up and made them into bars, but it basically has nothing in it which is really hard for us to get nowadays. Yeah, right? which is super interesting. Actually, over the last two weeks, I have seen like four or five different videos on the internet of people making chocolate at home from the beans. Mm. It's like a trend right now that people are just getting cocoa beans and making chocolate at home. So maybe now we will have a renaissance there you go. with 16th century hot chocolate. Right. Well, and there's a lot of debate right now about the ethics around chocolate cultivation yeah and that's something i want to talk about as well because i feel like is a lot of chocolate cultivation still going on in places like mexico or has it been all outsourced to like the african continent i think a lot more is now going on in africa um there probably i mean there still is people doing still are people doing sorry (laughs) (laughs) Uh, doing things in Mexico, particularly like Oaxaca, you can go and they're like doing the the beans in the barrel and like creating the chocolate there. Um, But I think the cultivation, especially the cultivation that goes to um, like, let's say Nestle or um, trying to think of other you know, Nestle or, Nestle or Nestle or Nestle. I don't know why I can't. Wonka. I mean, Wonka. not so much Nestle. Henry, but because they're in the U.S. But I'm thinking like the ones in Belgium and Switzerland and stuff like that's like coming Lint. from. Yeah, that's probably coming from Africa. Yeah, well, I think I mean, that's the thing. Every Halloween people start talking about, like, how do you ethically get your candy bars? Because mm-hmm. honestly, Nestle is terrible and i don't know if i'm allowed to say that i am assuming the university is not in cahoots with nestle but well i'm pretty sure that's who create gives us all our beverages in our vending machines probably oh come on nestle, <laughs> nestle and coke are like this <laughs> all right well we'll just cut that part out where i slander nestle maybe i don't know unless unless well, nestle the... gets this and we can have the the uh uh, sponsorship rights if nestle wants to sponsor our podcast we will say wonderful things about you but as for right now stop stealing our water stop stealing the chocolate for sure um you put up that you know thing that yeah, yeah we, everything we say doesn't have to do we with would like to remind listeners that all views and opinions expressed on research recasted belong to the individuals expressing them and do not represent McCune university exactly Thank you, Dylan. um well, that was you that was you talking oh, that's not my you, voice myself. um so yeah, the darker side of chocolate. Uh, can we just touch like Yeah. Yeah. Dive right in. Just yeah. tell us all about it. Um so certainly like chocolate has continued to have that sort of 
as we said, romantic, like this is what you give to the person who's in love. It's also got that like, well, my boyfriend dumped me on Valentine's Day. What am I going to do? Shove a bunch of chocolate in my face, right? Um, so we, you know, we see that kind of connection that has continued on till today. Um, but in that period, a lot of what we see is this sort of, how can I use chocolate to disguise the fact that I'm actually giving you a magic potion, right? So there's one play where the woman gives it to another guy because she wants to rifle through his pockets and get something that he had that she wanted. And so she gives him this potion in a chocolate drink uh, that makes him fall asleep. Um, There's also a anonymous treatise written called uh, The Great Sermon, by um we know it was a sephardic jew who had been pushed out of spain and gone to the netherlands but he writes this in spanish and it's basically him recasting recasting the uh, <laughs> that wasn't on purpose <laughs> the uh conquest through a chocolate lens as opposed to a religious lens so he says like he says all these priests then are after they've come back from the new world and they're like, Oh, we've got all this chocolate and all these conquistadors. They take that to Africa and Asia to sort of like convince these, um, you know, sort of Kings of Africa or of Asia to convert and become a part of the Spanish empire through chocolate as opposed to through religion. So we see like all these, all Did these different work? things. I mean, wouldn't, me. wouldn't you be like, <laughs> yeah, I'll drink your chocolate. Probably. Um, okay, that's so. The book. Um, just what period do you kind of end on? Like, kind of what can people expect? Is there a lot of discussion of of contemporary Spain and Spanish culture? There's but- not a lot. Um, the epilogue. I actually, I, I was in Spain, um, not in El Magro, in another town called Alcalá de Henares, which is right outside of Madrid. Like you can take a commuter train; it's forty minutes. Um, and they were putting on another theater festival, but this one had kind of like a mix. And I went to see uh, a play called. Ooh, I'm gonna forget now, um, but it was about. Um, a woman, Francisca de Pizarro, who is sort of the first well-known mixed race person. So her father is a Spanish conquistador. Her mother is a Inca princess. Um, and she eventually goes to Spain. And this is supposed to be her living out her last days in Spain and how she sort of rejected on both sides of the Atlantic. And at the end, she goes around and she actually was handing out chocolate beans to audience members and talking about how chocolate was like a major part of her childhood and how it brings up all these memories for her. Um, And so in the epilogue, I kind of talk about that and how that moment of of contact is still resonating today, um, particularly like the Mexican president has asked Spain to apologize for their part in the conquest and and the violence that had happened and they have absolutely denied that they will do that and they are not interested in having that conversation. So these things are still resonating today. A hundred percent. And I think we can see that as social justice becomes a bigger conversation. And I think it now is something that people, it's not an academic theory or an academic concept anymore. Like social justice is very much a part of our lexicon. It's very much a part of like everyday interaction between people so I think most countries now 
either are being asked <laughs> to acknowledge what parts they've taken um, or are actively trying to acknowledge and make reparations. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the book sounds fantastic. I definitely um, cannot wait to get a copy. If you had um, the publishers approach you again, what is an idea that you're working on or a project you're working on right now that you'd love them to come and be like, would you write us a book? So my colleague, Linda Nieto, who's at Ohio Wesleyan uh, in the U.S. and I are just starting this project where we're approaching Latinx artists um, throughout North America to talk about why these plays, why, what is it that attracts them to these plays? What are they doing with them? How are they adapting them to talk to their current audience? So, for example, one playwright that we met um, just earlier this year, Adrian Dawes, who's in the U.S., she did a adaptation of a play um, called originally El Perro del Hortelano, which is like the dog in the cradle or the dog on the hearth kind of thing. Um, and she called it this bitch, Esta Sangre Quiero. And it's about influencers and how influencers are sort of the modern day nobility and they like use their power to literally influence us, right? And so they they take the main woman in this play who's supposed to be this noble woman who is you know, being told you have to get married because you got to, you know, carry on that line and everything. But she falls in love with a servant. So in in Adrian's version, it's this influencer who falls in love with someone who doesn't have an Instagram following. And like, how does she deal with that, you know, power differential between them? So what would the book be? So the book would be looking at all these different companies and how they do things with either gender or race or, you know, whatever political situation or like bringing it up into pop culture, because we think of Shakespeare as like this high, you know, very important level. Um, And really, these plays were the popular culture of their time. Right. And so it's just going to talk about that and how it could continue to be popular culture. I mean, like every single play that you've mentioned has such an interesting like concept and like people are force feeding each other chocolate and (laughs) pickpocketing and like, yeah. um, Yeah. Cause I I don't really have a lot of experience with Spanish theater, but it's definitely intrigued me. Um, You, and it's also like, I'm talking to you and it's, it's, I keep forgetting that you're not, like from the theater department because you've done <laughs> yeah, so, much so much work. Theater. <laughs> um, so, yeah, what what you say that you know you kind of believe that students and artists like they're changing the world, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think from our conversation already, even the way you're talking about how they're adapting these things, like physically, like they're literally changing mm-hmm. parts of history to create these new plays, but. You know, from someone that is researching literature and art, what did these kinds of research projects and what does studying art like really bring to to society? Like, how does it change the world? So there was actually um, yesterday I saw a new psychology study that was that basically I feel like just how do I say it? Um confirms everything I've always believed about this stuff, which is that going to live theater creates empathy in people, right? And and we talk about that with even just like reading fiction, right? That being able to immerse yourself in another world and see things through a character's eyes can actually open your eyes to the way that that other people live and, and maybe 
create more of this empathetic response in you. Right. And I think that's one of the things that when I talk to artists and when I want to support artists in bringing more of these kinds of plays to the forefront and to audiences that might not normally be able to see them is to say like, we're not that different. And like, we can see that somebody who's going through something, whether it is um, gender dysphoria or, you know, racial discrimination or whatever, we can empathize with that and we can see, oh, like they're not that different. And also I care now about their struggle. Right. So that's to me the big thing that art can bring to us. Absolutely. Um, have you ever acted in a play or have you <laughs> always just been kind of like a lover of theater? So I've been a lover of theater. Um, the year that I was finishing my BA and going in to start my my MA at University of Western Ontario, now Western Ontario, um, which might give away how old I am. <laughs> But uh, there was a, they did like, they always did this sort of Shakespeare in the park type thing uh, at Western. And so I tried out and I got a non-speaking role. I've always been the tree with the little, yeah, (laughs) wave my branch. As Margaret in Much Ado About Nothing. Margaret does have some lines, but they were cut. Okay. (laughs) I think they were cut before they cast me. I don't think it was a personal thing. (laughs) Um, But it was, it was a lot of fun but I am not an actress and I know that. So I'm happy to be behind the scenes supporting artists and pushing their, their vision forward. Yeah. I was just going to ask too, like what is your role in all these plays? Like I, I sometimes work as like an overseer of certain, certain projects with certain companies. um, But it's not an active role in the production. So is there a specific role that is like a title that is when you're working with companies like this? Is it a consultant? Is it, um, I guess it's a consultant. I mean, this is sort of this one that I did last year in and that just had the the digital uh, premiere this past month. I was listed as sort of like, I guess a producer. I, I, I'd producer, have to go back and look director. yeah at, at exactly how they they put it, but you know, they also put like a special thanks to McEwen because we did get the funding from the Dean's office, which I, we're super grateful for. Um, and so, yeah, like that's sort of my first foray into that. So we'll, we'll have to see. It's, it's spiked something. It's, it's awoken this, this amazing, uh, producer spirit in you. Yeah, for sure. That's fantastic. So, yeah, I know you mentioned, um, the project you're just started. Um, is there anything else that you have in the works? Anything you want to plug other than your book books? (laughs) I mean, if anybody's interested in reading more about that um, one-man show, the the traveling salesman one, I wrote something about that, comparing it to fake news um, that just came out last December. I can give you the link for that. It's yes, open please. access as well. Um, I'm trying to think what else I've recently have come out. Um, yeah, I'm happy to, to share anything uh, that you can find on my website okay. or on my, you know, um, I don't know if we went over this, but where can we buy your book and when does it officially release? So the social justice one was released in February. Um, it's available on the U, U Toronto Press website. Um, it's also available on like Amazon and all those kinds of places as well. 
Um, and the chocolate book uh, was supposed to be out in August, but it now says July and it's shipping. So you can buy it now, um, both on the University of Toronto Press and all of those other places where you can buy things. Okay. And yeah, how can people find um, access to some of the theater companies? Should we just put some links yeah, I can certainly give you links to their sites. Um, if anybody is interested in watching a, a video of the Marilika one, I believe there's one on YouTube and I can send you the link for that. Perfect. It doesn't have the subtitles, however, so you do need to be able to speak Spanish. Or you have to be open to a new experience. I yeah. mean, it's like you can go to a restaurant and eat in the dark. Does, sure. does watch YouTube has closed language. captions, though. Does it not do auto captions? Probably in Spanish, you would think. Does, but they would be in Spanish, yeah. And sometimes those things aren't as good in <laughs> yeah, languages of, that of aren't course, English. Of course, of course. Um, and then you try to plug that into Google Translate, which yeah. again, not really super good. So, I mean, fun fact about me, I absolutely love film. I love going to movies by myself. Um, there was an international film, an international Filipino film that had come out and I was like first to the box office. I ran and I just like watch this video without subtitles and it was actually an amazing experience mm -hmm. just like again reading the uh, the emotion reading the 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 performance and just like by the end you like you know exactly what it, it was a cooking show about two brothers that had had one of the brothers had passed away but the brother that passed away was the head chef mm -hmm. and he knew all the recipes but the other brother knew no cooking. He couldn't cook at all. So the ghost of his brother had come back to haunt him to make sure that their restaurant was successful and that they won this cooking challenge. And like no subtitles at all, <laughs> but you get every single thing that yeah. that's going on. It's amazing. Yeah, I heard something the other day. Some person had been like, if you watch an episode of Friends with no volume, you still know exactly what's going on because of the way that it's acted. Like it's so, I think he was criticizing it for being transparent, but I was like, we're all human beings. And I feel like when you're watching theater, even if it's a crazy situation, the human emotions that are being represented in the metaphors, you know what's happening. Yeah, so for sure. And then Even you don't have to go with those crappy laugh tracks. You don't get to hear those. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's everything that I have for you. And if Dylan, if you have anything else, but... Uh, no, I could just go on for hours talking yeah. about anything. So uh, especially um, chocolate and theater and all yeah. those fun things. Then I want to kind of leave it with you. Um, is there anything that we forgot to ask or that you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover? Any last thoughts, insights, calls to action? Uh, that's a great question. Um <laughs> You can take your time. Like we can cut dead air out if that's. Okay. Yeah. Like no, I would say a couple things. One, take a language. It's the best thing you can do for your brain. Um, seriously, they've done studies that like people who speak multiple languages will stave off Alzheimer's and dementia and things like that for, for longer. Um, if you are prone to those things. Uh, go to the theater, support artists. Um, yeah. That's that's my plug. Go to the theater and learn a language. I love it. Just uh, just in time. Well, when this episode airs, Fringe Festival will be over, unfortunately. Yeah. But um, always check out any art in your area. Edmonton and surrounding areas are just such a such a hub for culture and art. And so go support 
and it's yeah yeah, yeah it. and support student yeah. artists we as have well. great student I artists come here come watch a you know come watch a musical here come see a play here mm-hmm. um i think that universities are a great place to support like emerging writers and emerging like yeah, artists for so sure Come check it out. (laughs) Okay, well, then thank you, Aaron, for being here with us and talking to us and giving us your time. Um, We really, really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to keep the party going, don't forget to check out the links in the episode description. This has been another episode of Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Art and Communications at McEwen University. You can support this podcast by listening on your favorite podcasting platforms with new episodes launching every two weeks. And don't forget to follow and give us a like on Instagram at Research Recasted. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing by Dylan Cave with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Our executive producers are Cynthia Pudu, Jason Malenko, and Ray Barry. Thanks for watching and stay cool. Stay cool.